Funding for Here and Now Anytime comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Hi, this is Here and Now Anytime, where we give you a little news, a little something you weren't expecting, and always a fresh, in-depth perspective on current events, arts and culture, and stories that matter. Subscribe or follow to get all our episodes out every weekday. And if you like what you hear, tell a friend about us to help spread the word. Now here's the show. The big thing that they emphasized was that the New York Attorney General lacked witnesses to speak about the fraud specifically. Donald Trump's civil fraud trial is over. Now his fate lies in the hands of a judge. Friday, January 12th, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Ashley Locke, in for Chris Bentley. Former President Trump closes out his civil fraud trial in New York with a passionate defense. And rural schools often struggle to do more with less. We work really hard on trying to figure out how can we make, you know, lemonade out of the lemons that we've been handed. A high school counselor in Alabama is getting national recognition for the creative ways she's helping her students get a taste of college. But first, Democrats and Republicans are upset that President Biden signed off on airstrikes against Iran-backed Houthi militants in Yemen without consulting Congress. The strikes were launched in coordination with the United Kingdom to retaliate against Houthi attacks on commercial ships in the Red Sea. Yemen scholar Stacy Philbrick Yadoff has concerns about the wider implications of this. She's a professor at Hobart and William Smith Colleges. Here's her conversation with Scott Tong. The Houthi militants pledged to be part of what they call an axis of resistance against Israel and allied with the Palestinians in Gaza. They've attacked ships in the Red Sea, triggering this U.S. and U.K. response. Briefly, what is the ideology motivating these militants? Well, certainly the Houthis are best known outside of Yemen for their outward-facing slogan, death to America, death to Israel, and a curse on the Jews. But their political aims are really domestic and regional. I say domestic and regional because Yemen has been in an internationalized civil war since 2015. Mm. But the conflict really goes back much, much longer than that. And the Houthi movement itself dates to 2004, They've survived a lot of political changes in the intervening decades and have evolved Mm. organizationally and militarily. And today, what do we know about their military capability? I've read that they control long-range drones, cruise missiles, ballistic missiles. Right. They have a demonstrated capability with all of those, particularly in the Red Sea, but they've also sent missiles into Saudi Arabia in the past. And that technology has improved over time, and it does relate to their relationship to Iran. I don't interpret the Houthi militants as a straightforward proxy of the government of Iran. And in fact, I heard a U.S. military official earlier today on NPR saying that the U.S. government doesn't view Iran as directing these attacks, Mm. right, but as enabling them. Yeah. And as far as that underlying support, does that go back many years, this relationship between these uh, Houthis and the Iranians? 
Yes and no. And I think that the idea of an ideological similarity between the Houthis and the Iranian regime is definitely overstated. They emerge domestically out of a very distinct Yemeni context. They are a different type of Shi'i group. They don't follow the same Shi'i tradition. Over time, as they've had more exposure and worked more closely together, there may be some ideological convergence. And the Yemeni Zaidi tradition that the Houthi movement comes out of is actually really distinct to Yemen. And that sort of makes them both a religious organization, but also a nationalist one. That's a controversial claim since Mm -hmm. that religion and nationalism sort of is interwoven. But to be Zaidi, as the Houthis are, is almost the same thing as saying being Yemeni because there aren't substantial Zaidi populations elsewhere. That said, Mm -hmm. many, many Yemenis are not of a Zaidi background and many Zaidis don't subscribe to the ideology of the Houthis either. Houthi leaders have vowed that these attacks last night will not go unanswered or unpunished. Could this spiral into a broader regional war? What are scenarios you worry about? Yeah, I absolutely do worry about this escalation. I think the U.S. appears to have been anxious about that as well, right? The first attacks in the Red Sea were in November, and a lot of time has passed since then, a lot of disruption already, assembling this kind of coalition of states to address the threat, issuing warning after warning. I think there was a real reluctance to engage militarily here. And in fact, if you look at the attacks, the airstrikes themselves seem to have been narrowly aimed at degrading Houthi military capabilities, not a broader attack. On the other hand, the Houthis have vowed that they'll retaliate. And I'm seeing early reports today that Iraqi militias, also with attacks to Iran, have struck some U.S. targets in Iraq. So it may be that the Houthis' position as part of a wider network of non-state allies of Iran means that retaliation doesn't come directly from inside Yemen itself. Are you suggesting some level of coordination among several groups in Iraq, I don't know, Hamas, Hezbollah. I mean, should we think about potential coordination here? I don't know how coordinated it will be. I will say there aren't a lot of possible U.S. targets within Yemen itself. And if these airstrikes have, in fact, degraded the Houthis' ability to reach far outside of Yemen, and I don't know that yet, then I would expect to see efforts to retaliate against U.S. forces in other parts of the Middle East region. Is there anything important that we didn't ask you about? So the conflict in Gaza and the escalation in the Red Sea really plays into the domestic and regional objectives of the Houthis. The conflict in Gaza and solidarity with the Palestinians is something around which Yemenis can easily coalesce. This has happened before. I was in Sana'a during Operation Cast Lead, an earlier campaign in Gaza, and I saw how unifying that was across politically dissimilar groups of Yemenis. So likewise Mm. today, all Yemeni factions have come out really clearly against the current Israeli campaign in Gaza. We've been talking to Stacey Philbrick-Yadov. She's professor at Hobart and William Smith Colleges, and her book is Yemen in the Shadow of Transition, Pursuing Justice Amid War. Professor Philbrick-Yadov, thanks so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Coming up next, former President Trump faces legal woes up and down the East Coast as he runs for president again. What are the stakes for him in New York? Deepa Fernandez has the latest. Stick around.
This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares why Betterment believes cash can be a strategic choice. There are times when the market is volatile, when customers are a little nervous about investing. We came to understand that there was an opportunity to introduce cash as part of an investing strategy and to give back yields to the customer. Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance not guaranteed. Cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. Donald Trump was back in court yesterday for the closing arguments of the New York civil fraud trial against him, and he disrupted the proceeding by ranting against the judge and the attorney general. Prosecutors are asking for a $370 million penalty against Trump for the fraud he committed in his real estate dealings. Jonah Bromwich has been inside the courtroom covering the case for the New York Times, and he joins us now. Hi, Jonah. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So, Jonah, the judge had already indicated he was inclined to let Trump speak during closing arguments if Trump could follow some basic rules, and these are rules everyone follows in closing arguments. But just as the judge was outlining those rules in court, Trump basically grabs the mic, right? And then he says he's the victim, the fraud was perpetrated on him, and the attorney general should pay him? Yes, that's exactly right. And I think this was very predictable. Donald Trump was given a chance to take the microphone because the judge addressed him directly with the thought of having him pledge to follow the rules. But once he had the mic, Donald Trump was the Donald Trump we know him to be, which is to say he paid no heed to those rules. He did attack the judge to his face. He attacked the attorney general and he used that time as he wanted to make a political speech. So who was his audience then, given he was attacking the judge who is deciding on this case? I think Trump's audience is almost always the general public. He is a political animal, and this was a political speech. So even though he was in the courtroom, I think he has a sense that his words are going to be reported on by many media outlets. Let's remind listeners, the judge already found Trump did commit sweeping and persistent fraud. So this part of the case centers on the penalty Trump will have to pay. What did prosecutors emphasize in their closing arguments? So the New York Attorney General, her lawyers have argued Trump has been unrepentant in committing this type of fraud and really needs to see pretty severe consequences so that he doesn't do this type of thing again. They've asked that he be penalized $370 million. They say that's the amount of money he gained by committing the fraud. And they're also asking that he be barred both from New York's real estate world and from doing business in New York itself. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot at stake for Trump. He could also lose his signature namesake properties. And Trump's defense attorneys, what was their closing? The big thing that they emphasized was that the New York Attorney General lacked witnesses to speak about the fraud specifically. And at least for two of the defendants, the judge noted 
there was not that much evidence tying Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump to the fraud, both of whom are also defendants in this case. Now, Trump has been lashing out against the attorney general, the judge, the judge's clerk throughout this case. Each of them have received numerous death threats. Even up to the day of closing arguments yesterday, Judge Engeron received a bomb threat at his home before coming to court in the morning. What do we know about what happened? What we do know is that very early in the morning yesterday, the judge awoke to police, a bomb squad arriving at his house, and they seemed to be responding to some sort of threat. At the moment, we believe it was what's called swatting, which is when essentially to cause a disruption and potentially endanger someone you don't like, you call in and say that there's something happening at their house that will occasion that kind of emergency response. It is notable that the judge in one of the criminal cases against Trump, also received a swatting threat just a few days ago. So this just kind of highlights, I think, the tension and and danger of presiding over one of these cases. Now, Judge Engeron says he'll have a decision by the end of the month, and it's expected that the Trump team will appeal. Jonah Bromwich is New York Times reporter covering the civil fraud case. Thanks so much, Jonah. Of course. Thanks for having me. Coming up, we hear from National School Counselor of the Year, Diana Virgil, about how she's bringing college courses to her students for free after the break. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure. AI may be the most important new computer technology ever, but AI needs a lot of processing speed, and that gets expensive fast. Upgrade to the next generation of the cloud, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure. OCI is the single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. Do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic. Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. Sometimes it takes a different approach to unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format is designed to help you learn relevant skills at your own pace, so you can earn your degree on your terms and apply what you learn right away. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. For the first time, the nation's top school counselor hails from a rural community in Alabama. Diana Virgil is the sole counselor to 346 students at Daleville High School, and she's being honored by the American School Counselor Association as its 2024 National School Counselor of the Year for how she's supporting her kids in a post-pandemic world. She tells Deepa about how many of her students are not just the first in their family to go to college, but the first to graduate high school. 
the population. We have a lot of the working class community here. Around 76% of my students are in poverty. Um, we have a lot of different, we have some Ukraine students here, and we have some students hmm. from Guatemala, El Salvador. And of course, we have um, your regular demographics of the U.S. And we pretty much just work really hard to make sure that we are meeting the needs by meeting them where they are and going ahead and figuring out what do I need to do as the next step in preparing for life after high school, whether it be the workforce, college, military, or what have it. Those are things that a lot of the needs are, that students are needing because some of them just don't know, and they're the first to do it. So making sure they understand that is important. Yeah, and I wonder if, if you in some ways can relate on a personal level to what your students are going through. Yes, um, I grew up, my mother stopped school in ninth grade, and one of the things that she really entailed was me pushing forward and going to get an education using the public system. And when I was in school, you know, many people say, get your parents to help you. And for me, I couldn't get my mom to help me because she didn't understand the material. So I used to teach my mom the stuff that I was learning to reinforce what was going on. So therefore, I can learn the material back. So it helped me to take really good notes and everything. And so I I guess that gives you a a really great amount of empathy for for what some of your students might be living. How do you help them then? Like what kind of programs have you set up or, or ways in which they can still advance given that they might have some challenges that other students don't? Some of the programs that I've set up is that I've allowed for to utilize our teachers that are on campus with master's degrees to be able to adjunct teach at the community college. And by doing that, I'm allowing my students that come from low socioeconomic backgrounds that may not can afford a car to drive to the community college to be able to take college classes here on campus for free because the community college has a grant that allows that. And so that has increased our dual enrollment and also given students the opportunity to kind of get a taste of what college life is like without even leaving their high school. And dual enrollment meaning you're enrolled in high school and you're enrolled at the community college. Correct, correct. And we started off when I got here, we only had about four kids in dual enrollment. Right now we're at approximately almost 40. And it works tremendously because the community college actually comes to our high school campus and does classes um, for some of their instructors, like our English class. And my science and math teacher with master's degrees, they actually teach the dual enrollment. So wow. like, for instance, my math teacher, you can get 12 hours of college credit in math when you leave here as a senior. Yeah. And you yourself are, are, are very highly educated. You have a master's and a PhD. Tell me yes. how you bring that level of, of intellectual rigor to the work that you're doing, you know, in such a grassroots, hands-on way with students every day. Each phase of my degree has taught me a different aspect about myself, such as being able to, you know, be goal-driven and to work hard and to figure out things in research, of course, with the PhD. And that has allowed me to be able to help my students to find solutions when they're going through problems as well. To tell them, my goal is to help them critically think, so therefore they are able to figure out the things and they won't need me all the time. Diana, can I ask you, you know, what your biggest challenges are in this role, what you find hard? 
One thing that I find hard is the lack of resources. Being in a rural area, finding people just to teach. For instance, our Spanish teacher is virtual because we can't find a Spanish teacher to teach. So that does make it hard because we are so small. We don't get the resources like bigger schools. Therefore, it it makes it sometimes hard. You have to figure out how can I work around that? Not only just my department, but all of us in the school system, we work really hard on trying to figure out how can we make, you know, lemonade out of the lemons that we've been handed (laughs) and to make the best experience for our students. So Diana, if you had a magic wand and there was no object to money or resources, what would you do to further support your students? One thing I would do is definitely making sure that we have pretty much all resources on hand, having the more teachers and being able to really dig into the social and emotional learning aspect in every portion of our school. And we're happy we're getting a school-based therapist, so I'm really excited about that. But being able to just, for instance, have just more personnel And also to make sure our ratios are down as school counselors to make sure that we are meeting the 250 to 1 ratio. I'm pretty okay at the high school, but my middle school and elementary kind of, they almost at 500, 400, so it's a lot. Yeah, I'm sure if if you could be cloned, uh, a Miss Virgil at (laughs) at times two or three at many schools would be very welcome. Diana Virgil is a school counselor at Dalville High School in Alabama, and she is this year's National School Counselor of the Year. She'll be officially celebrated in February in Washington, D.C. Diana, thank you so much. Thank you. Staying on the education beat, Deepa learns more from two women about a program at the University of Arizona that aims to increase the number of Native American teachers in schools. Noor Hagigi has been writing about this in the publication Arizona Luminaria, and her story was featured by the Solutions Journalism Network. And Valerie Shirley is co-director of the Indigenous Teacher Education Program at the University of Arizona. Here's their interview with Deepa. Valerie, I'm going to start with you. Why is it important to have Native teachers? What do students get out of learning from someone who is Indigenous to their land? I think it's important because Native teachers have the ability to to understand their students, where they're coming from. They have the cultural knowledge of their land, you know, their communities, their people, the culture. Historically, teaching and learning through our cultural experiences and knowledge systems have been excluded from the schooling experiences for Native students. And so the forced assimilation of Native students has always been there. And so the program that we have here at the University of Arizona works to really sustain those knowledges and prepares teachers to teach in such a way. Noor, there are about 45,000 Native students to about 1,000 Native teachers, and that's according to the State's Department of Education. What are some of the reasons for that gap? As Valerie and her colleagues have told me, the relationship between Native uh, Americans and, and education has sort of a traumatic background with boarding schools especially, and they're still working to heal that gap. It's programs like the Indigenous Teacher Education Program at the University of Arizona that are starting small but making big strides in a positive direction for Indigenous communities and education. 
Yeah, it's really an interesting program. And Valerie, maybe you can tell us more about it. So it was founded in 2018. And I want you to tell us how maybe it's different from other teacher education programs. What are Native teachers learning? First and foremost, it's uh, the idea that teachers are Native nation builders, meaning that they draw on their Indigenous knowledge systems, their languages, their values to really ground their teaching and learning experiences within the classroom and beyond. And I say beyond because learning happens outside of the classroom walls as well, too. So how might we begin to break free of that whole idea of learning in the classroom and go out into the onto the land, into the communities to learn? An example would be mining on Indigenous lands. The mining companies are destroying the land and the resources that exist there. So the process of creating curriculum requires teachers to critically engage the students in understanding what's happening to the land and the knowledge systems that are embedded within aspects of the land. It sounds fascinating. I imagine there are challenges involved. Your program pays for students' tuition and housing and other living expenses. But I wonder if there are other challenges, maybe cultural, that hold potential students back from joining. Yes. uh, You know, I think that's one of our biggest challenges is to recruit. You know, it becomes a struggle for them to leave their home communities because they have different cultural responsibilities and obligations within their home communities and to uproot themselves and their families to move to Tucson and attend the program here for two years. That becomes a, a challenge. Nor, you spoke to one student in the program, Jara Cole, and she told you that the program helped her become more comfortable with her identity as a Native American. Tell us a little bit more about her. Yeah, so Jara was actually the reason that I started looking into this story. She's one of my coworkers, and I learned about the Indigenous Teacher Education Program through her. She was sort of a gateway into me learning more about the two tribes that we have here in Tucson alone, the Pasquayaki and the Tohono O'odham, in addition to the 22 tribes that we have in Arizona, which is such a significant amount. And Jarrah really opened up this knowledge for me and by extension for my uh, university peers and the community in general. And then I wonder what you see as the future for Indigenous teachers in Arizona. How are graduates from the program using what they've learned and and how students responding? Valerie? I think, you know, to really incorporate Indigenous knowledge as the foundation of their classroom experiences, that's the goal. And to really develop this critical consciousness around some of the contemporary types of issues happening around them and within their communities. The goal is for them to develop curriculum and teach it within their own classrooms. Valerie Shirley is co-director of the Indigenous Teacher Education Program at the University of Arizona, and Noor Hagigi reported for the publication Arizona Luminaria. Thank you to both of you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. This show comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by me, Thomas Danielian, Shirley Jihad, Sam Rafelson, and Kalyani Saxena. Today's editors were Todd Munt, Peter O'Dowd, and Micaela Rodriguez. Technical direction from Caleb Green and Michaela Varela. 
Our theme music is by Mike Moschetto, Max Liebman, and Chris Bentley. Our digital producers are Allison Hagen and Grace Griffin. The executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. Have a nice holiday weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor Planet Oat. No deep thinking here. Planet Oat oat milk is rich, creamy, and an excellent source of calcium with vitamins A and D. Also, Planet Oat's unsweetened varieties have zero grams of sugar. Visit planetoat.com for more. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.